Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio and we've got a special guest for you today coming all the way from sunny and beautiful Santa Monica, California, Chris Joseph. Chris, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you for having me. Truly, it's an honor to be here. Well, thank you for reaching out. Full disclosure, Chris had reached out to us, which is kind of cool uh, for those listening at home. Um, I, if you listen to the podcast from time to time, we get survivors, advocates, doctors to reach out to us. And we love that because we love sharing as many positive stories in this space as possible. And, and Chris and I, 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 you know, we're talking a little bit before we hit record on the wonderful weather. He said in, in Santa Monica, we record in Connecticut. It's a minus 10 today. It's probably going to be the coldest day of the new year here in Connecticut. And we're supposed to, and Chris, I think we're supposed to get about a foot of snow on Monday. So <laughs> to put things in perspective, keeping it real here on the Project Purple podcast, but you said you're having like two days of rain, which is nonstop, which is the, the rain season. And then, you know, it's beautiful skies from there on. So exactly. thanks for sharing that with me before, just to make me feel <laughs> a little bit more, you know, worse about our living situation here in Connecticut. <laughs> I don't claustrophobic, know. right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know who pays more in tax, though. I think, you know, California might have a leg up on us in taxes, but... That is true, yes. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we take the uh, the, the colder climates for a little bit less tax. I think, we're, I think you guys are three, we're four, so I don't know. Maybe that's a push. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris, here on the podcast. And as we do always, the first segment is our guest opportunity to share a little bit about their background. And as I was saying before we hit record, you know, this is the the opportunity for you to share with our audience. Some of our audience may know you because I know you've uh, been on a couple of sites. You've got a book, which we're going to go into. So um, you may not be completely foreign, but for those that may not know you, this is your opportunity to share your background. And as I always say, you can go as far back as you want or you can stay as high level as you want. So with that, the mic is yours, Chris. Okay, thank you. Um, so for context, I, right now I'm 64 years old. Um, four and a half years ago in the summer of 2016, and I'll, I'll just go back to when I started feeling some symptoms. Um, so four and a half years ago, I was feeling indigestion, stomach discomfort, never any pain, but I just felt like I had a stomach bug and something was going on. I, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it, but it was keeping me up a little bit at night and bothering me. Simultaneously, and I didn't connect these dots at all the time, but simultaneously, I was also going through some depression. And it was odd because, I mean, every, every human goes through some acute depression, but this was pretty deep. And it was weird, odd, because my life was going really well. I mean, my, I have two kids uh, I had a, and still have a great girlfriend. My work was going well. And, and there was nothing to indicate why I should be so depressed, why I was so depressed. So in October of 2016, I finally saw a doctor, a regular doctor, and he poked around and Decided he didn't tell me that he felt something, but he he told what he did tell me was that um, to go get some scans. I on October 
31st, Halloween day of 2016, I, I went to get my scans and I thought, well, this is going to be routine. Um, and it turned out to be anything, but um, they did one scan and then I had to wait in the waiting room and wait and wait and wait, which was kind of odd. And then I finally asked the receptionist at the front desk, you know, what's going on? And they said sort of the kiss of death. Um, we want to run some tests that your doctor didn't order. Not something you want to hear. So the, the subsequent tests were run that same day. I was by myself because I didn't think anything was going to be told to me that was going to be wrong. After the, the, the next test, the radiologist came into the room I was in, a private room I was in, and he said that I had a mass in my pancreas. And that's all he told me. Um, hmm. I'm not sure I'm allowed to cuss on this podcast, but um, no holds barred. It, it, it scared the crap out of me, as you might imagine. Um, I mean, I, 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 you know, pancreatic cancer is it's the go-to cancer for screenwriters when they want to want to write out a character in a movie yeah. you know, or a TV show. Um, and so immediately I thought I'm going to be dead in a few months. That was the start of my journey that day, October 31st, 2016. There, there's a whole story that goes beyond that, but I, I don't know if you want to ask questions about it or, or where we go from there. Well, so yeah, so I, I just want to pause there for a second. So I want to go back to, and I'm taking notes here, Chris, as well. I wish we had a vlog, and I've said that many times because a lot of times I'll, I'll point to my notes um, even though there's no one looking. So the summer of 2016, you said you had this stomach bug and deep depression. Mm -hmm. When you say stomach bug, was it a GI type issue or was it just like acid reflux? I, it felt like my stomach was churning a lot. It felt uncomfortable. Um, I, I maybe acid reflux. I don't know if I've ever had that. Mm -hmm. um, um, I wasn't having like it, it felt like indigestion, but the indigestion that never went away. Mm -hmm. um, it got worse at night, and it was keeping me up or would wake me up sometimes. And when it didn't go away, when, as I said, I thought it was just some sort of bug. And when it didn't go away after a few weeks, that's when I decided to finally get it checked. So prior to the summer, and I just want to talk about the stomach thing here, appetite, eating, digestion, no issues? Um, I was losing some weight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also, I, I've always been in pretty good shape and I mm -hmm. was active and healthy up until this time. Um, but I was, I was probably about 10 pounds overweight in the beginning of that summer. And I, so I consciously tried to lose a little bit of weight. I'm, I don't go on diets. I just watch what I eat and mm -hmm. exercise more. Um, but I, I, I remember seeing my girlfriend that I was losing weight so easily. And of course it turned out there was a reason for that. And it was because of the cancer. And then if we even go back to the last 30 years, Chris, no health issues, nothing like no GI issues, nothing to deal with your uh, eating or, you know, diabetes or anything like that. 
no, no diabetes, no serious illnesses. I've had a tendency over the decades to pick up various stomach bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I had salmonella that I got from Mexico in my early 20s. I got uh, giardia from backpacking the Sierras a couple times. I got Campylobacter when I visited uh, Asia when I was in my 40s. So I've, I've had a tendency to be to to pick up those kind of things, but you know, you, you get over them with some medication and some time. Uh, but no, nothing serious. But those are kind of what you would maybe expect doing those kinds of activities. Not that everyone has that, but that's the risk, right? Like, you know, naturally Correct. being in a foreign Correct. country, potentially getting a stomach bug or, mm-hmm. you know, getting food poisoning, but nothing like pancreatitis or anything. So from a, no. from a medical no. standpoint, Prior to the summer of 16, there weren't any red flags that we would traditionally see, like, you know, in terms of, you know, pancreatitis or, you know, late onset diabetes. Uh, None, none of those things. It was, that's what made it even more shocking when I got diagnosed. And in terms of, and I just want to bring this up because I know, you know, Depression, I know, has been talked about um, in some clinical studies as, as you know, an, an early detection um, mm-hmm. prognosis potentially because there's experience. But then people say, well, hey, when people are sick, naturally they are depressed. When you say deep depression, what, how would you describe that? Um, suicidal thoughts. Um, wondering if I wanted to continue with my life. I mean, it, I mm-hmm. never actually did anything um and i my thoughts never got serious to the point of oh this is what i want to do and how i want to do it but i was definitely thinking i i don't know if i want to live and and i had no idea why and i kept it to myself for most of the first few weeks and once i started talking about it um it it sort of let the air out of the balloon a little bit Hmm. that's fascinating so you get this diagnosis on Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I know from just reading the history, you know, you kind of, with your doctor's orders, you know, you go right into, you know, it looks like chemotherapy. I did. I, I, I my general doctor um, recommended an oncologist to me, and I, I didn't really do any research, which is one of the things I've learned over the years that it's vitally important to get second and third opinions. It's vitally yep. important to, to even Google the doctor's name and see what there is on social media. I mean, you have to use a filter on social media, but I didn't do any of that. Um, so your GP doctor, recommends a guy and you just go, okay, uh-huh. we're going. Yeah. I was, you know, my, my, it was a very basic I don't know if the right word is primal or not, but I, I, I sort of felt at that time, this person knows much more about my condition than I do. Mm-hmm. Listen to him, mm-hmm. listen to him. Um, and th- that doctor in fairness to him has saved a lot of, a lot of lives or has extended people's lives did not, that that was not my experience. Um, so I don't like to put blame on him or anything like that. Um, but what he wanted to do, what he what he recommended, and what I did do for the first few months, which was chemotherapy, did not work, and it made my condition worse. 
And there was also the side effects of the chemotherapy, which are can be brutal. Um, so I felt I was on a path to to death, to be honest. Um, and by the way, I got diagnosed with third stage pancreatic cancer. I don't think I mentioned that. Um, but I, I thought I was on a path to death. And finally, one one day in March of 2017, a few months after I got diagnosed, I told my girlfriend, I, I, you know, I was scheduled to go into chemotherapy the next day. And I said, I'm done. I'm just done. Um, I, I didn't have a plan B at that point. Uh, but I knew that I didn't want to do plan A anymore. Do you remember the chemotherapy that they put you on? I don't. Um, it, this doctor is known for, um, at least initially, this is what he tried with me. That changed, but he, he's known for a lighter dosage. Mm -hmm. But I know I, I didn't know anything about chemotherapy until I started this, um, and I still know very little about it, to be honest. But there, there were like a combination of three or four drugs. Uh, at various doses. And then when that didn't work and my condition was getting worse, he upped the dose. And I think he changed the cocktail. Mm -hmm. um, it sure seemed, you know, and I'm giving you my, my, <laughs> this may show my lack of knowledge, but it seems like every doctor has their own formula. Every oncologist has their own, their own system of what they want to do or what they want to try. Um, what my doctor tried and clearly was not working for me. Well, I think like there's guidelines, right? And I know from, you know, the NIH, the, 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 from the NIH and then from the medical side that there are specific guidelines for certain diseases in terms of what chemotherapy, chemotherapy drugs are used. But there's also this school of thought with certain doctors that, you know, um, adding alternatives in there, whether that's vitamin D or another uh, cocktail that's approved by the FDA. They're not doing anything outside of the, the realm of what's not approved, what's, what's approved, I should say, you know, and, and combining certain dosage, you know, certain patients do better in their ideology, right? So I think like that's the one thing that's interesting you know, and hearing you talk, you know, is that, um, you know, I know there are some oncologists out there and this sometimes goes to the situation. Um, you know, in my experience, Chris, you know, at that point you're, you're just shy of, well, you're around 60. Sounds like you're in pretty good shape. Uh, I'm not a doctor, but you know, light dose, um, you know, chemotherapy treatments, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not an expert in it, so I'm not going to start to, uh, add, you know, kind of theories or conjecture on it because I don't know exactly. But, you know, the point is that I, I you know, a lot of doctors, oncologists um, will use the guidelines, but then depending on the patient will determine how much. And I just know from my situation, my personal situation with my dad, you know, the, the, the re recommended guideline for his height and weight was X, but, you know, he didn't tolerate it very well. So they pulled it back. And then when, you know, that stopped working, then they, they offered like an oral chemotherapy, right? So oncologists will do that. They, they kind of tinker with the medications, you know, so that the patients can tolerate it. Sometimes that, you know, that toleration that they, they do, you know, so that patients can tolerate the chemos 
you know, sometimes doesn't work in the benefit of the patient in terms of the cancer, you know, regressing. Sometimes it progresses, you know, so it's, it's kind of a, it's not like a one size fits all. I feel. I totally agree with that. I, in fact, I don't think it's a one size fits all at all. No. Um, and I think, um, I, my, my belief about my first oncologist is that even though he adjusted things when I wasn't doing well, I, I think he felt his, his cocktail, his recipe was sort of a one size fits all, mm. um, that he wasn't willing to look outside the box. Um, he didn't like being questioned. I mean, that's, that's for me now the kiss of death with any doctor Yeah, that it's so important to be able to not just with a doctor, but with any health professional to be able to sit down with them and for them to listen and for them to ask questions um, and to have an exchange and explanations. This, this doctor was not like that. It, and I, again, I don't blame him. I, I didn't interview him. I, I, as I mentioned earlier, it was more, save me, save my life. Um, it was a big mistake that I made. I think that's a little tough though, Chris, to put that on you, but don't you think, and I know we want to talk about this and I, and I've uh, said this and you know, doctors have to have empathy and sympathy for their patients. They do do a lot of training. They are experts in their field. At least they should be. But at the end of the day, they should have, you know, you should be able as a patient to question the doctor, to have that exchange yeah. with the doctor. Not to say that, hey, what you're doing, I don't think is the right thing, but maybe the mindset of have I overcome all the patient's concerns and maybe objections to going down this road and making sure that they feel 100% comfortable mentally and physically with the course we are going. And I don't feel that enough clinicians take the time, and we're not talking about hours, this happens in minutes, to do that. Yeah. And, you know, there's a business end to this, and this is why I bring this up, and, and I'm glad you brought it up. You know, this is a big business, and all these patients are paying customers. And just like when you go to get your car serviced, and if the service is not done correctly, or if you feel that something's missing, you speak up. And the same thing, you know, and I don't mean to sound, you know, derogatory or to use this as an example as like, you know, that like, you know, getting chemotherapy is, is like getting an oil change or getting your car service. It's not by any means, but patients have the right to speak up and should have their concerns and their voice heard with clinicians. And it's frustrating to hear when that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, first of all, I agree with everything you said. Second of all, um, when you started, you asked me if I was being hard on myself, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that's what you meant. Yeah. And, and, and I, Maybe that's true, but I, I think that 
one of my goals, I, I got so much help by so, so much great help by so many wonderful people over the last four and a half years that I sort of now and, and for the last few years and now want to pay it forward. Um, but I, I want, I want, hopefully I want people to learn from my mistakes. So I'm okay with admitting that I made a mistake. I'm okay with saying, you know what? I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't ask this doctor anything. Um, or very little. That's that's too strong to say anything, but very little. And I, I just believed him, and that that part was a mistake. And thankfully, I've learned not to do that anymore. And I hope others can learn that too. It's powerful stuff. So in March, get back to March of 2017. You say, "Hey, I'm out. I'm done. I can't do this." Yeah. Where, where does your journey go there? <laughs> well, yeah, I thought. I thought, okay. I mean, I. I Seriously, I'm laughing about it now, but I, at the time I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I'd rather die of cancer than die of chemo. That's how much I hated chemotherapy. Um, and it wasn't working. Um, but, and so I didn't know it, but it, it actually opened up a whole window of opportunity into things I had no knowledge about, both Western and non-Western. Um, and both of those things were sort of going on at the same time. Um, I, I had a friend, have a friend who went to a clinic in Germany and he had some success and still is alive and doing well. Um, he had bladder cancer, different kind of cancer. But um, I, so I looked into that clinic. I looked into a few other clinics in Mexico and here in the U.S. And um, at the same time, the FDA was giving approval to Keytruda. They were doing clinical mm -hmm. trials on Keytruda. Um, and I just started learning a little bit about that. But what really what happened in, in March and April of that year was my other general doctor, I, I had two at the time, um, had the presence of mind to send my biopsy to a lab back east. And that lab tested for genetic mm -hmm. Uh, things which my oncologist never did and the the genetic profile showed that I have I mean I was told that I had a very common form of pancreatic cancer and it actually turned out not to be true that's another thing that where the on, oncologist made a mistake um, it turns out I have a very rare form one in a hundred for pancreatic cancer but that pancreatic cancer is also what the FDA was looking at to approve Keytruda for hmm. was those one, one in a hundred people. So I went to Germany to do some non-traditional, I call it immunotherapy, but just not Western medicine immunotherapy. Um, I was there for three weeks. It definitely helped heal my body from the chemo. I believe it helped. Um, I think, I believe it helped heal my cancer. I can't prove that, but I believe that. Um, and I did all sorts of things there from vitamin drips, laetrile, stem cell, uh, hyperthermia, which is heat treatment. Mm -hmm. um, when I came back in May of 2017, the FDA had just approved Keytruda. So all my doctors thought it would be a good idea to continue or to start on that. And so I did Keytruda for two years. Um, over the span of until 2019, about a year and a half ago, when I stopped doing 
Keytruda, but then there's a footnote to that, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, between the, the west, the western Keytruda and the non-western stuff, which I was still doing here, I was doing mistletoe. I was injecting myself in mistletoe. I was doing a lot of supplements, working out a lot, trying to keep my body active, meditating, doing yoga. Um, my tumor shrank um, to about. It, it shrank about a third and I was feeling great. Um, and so I, it's hard to know exactly what did what it's hard to know whether the Western or the non-Western helped more. I believe they both helped to be honest. I believe they both helped. Um, the, the footnote is that a couple months ago, about three or four months ago, I was starting to have some stomach discomfort again, which scared the crap out of me. Um, and I went in to get a scan early. I was I was probably three months early. My tumor had grown a little bit, not a lot. My doctor wasn't worried about it. Um, they put me back on Keytruda, which I'm about to finish up here in the next few weeks. Um, my stomach issues, I think, were related more to what turned out to be a bacterial infection. And the story is too long to <laughs> talk about in this podcast. But... Um, I, the, the, the the bottom line is today I feel and I have been feeling great again. Um, and I feel like I don't call myself a survivor. I call myself a thriver. I love it. So I get a question, a couple questions here for you. And I'm going to go back to the genetics piece first. Mm -hmm. So you say the genetics came back with this very rare form. Um, do you know, were, were you positive for any genetic markings, any mutations? Yeah, I, I, my girlfriend, if she was here in this room with me, would laugh because she, she looks into this stuff <laughs> much more deeply than I do. Um, but it's called MSI, microsatellite instability. Um, but here's where, if you ask me what that means, I'm not going to be able to tell you. But it's, it's MSI positive. MSI positive. Oh, okay. That's a new one. Uh, I wouldn't say new one, but, um, you know, we've had some folks on the the podcast that were BRCA, uh, Lynch syndrome, uh, but we've never had anyone MS, MSI positive. So you take the uh, the cake on that one, Chris. <laughs> well, here, here's the good news. I don't know anything about, and I've never even heard of those other genetic defects you mentioned. So it's there's awesome. that. Awesome. You learn something new every day. Yeah. Now, when you went to Germany, so I, I, I want to spend some time on this. So this non-traditional therapy, as you mentioned in Germany, you know, involved a, a lot of things sound like, but so w did you go into that knowing like, okay, so I'm going to fly to Germany and this is what I'm going to do. Or was it like, Hey, you get here and then they run you through kind of a, a battery of tests and then they kind of determine what the best therapies are given your, your cancer. Um, they, they took my medical records. Um, they ran some of their own tests when I got there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I was there for three weeks, but, um, I, it, it was more, well, let, let me back up a little bit. Um, because I think this is an important piece. What made sense to me about immunotherapy, Western or non-Western, as opposed to chemo radiation or surgery was that immunotherapy was going to help uh, ramp up my immune system 
to, and this is my words, not someone in the medical profession, would be to repel the cancer or to change the conditions in my body, which allowed the cancer to thrive. Mm-hmm. That made sense to me just from, and still does from a logical standpoint, it, it never made sense to me and still doesn't that with, with surgery or radiation or chemotherapy, it's about getting rid of it. But it's, there's nothing in those three techniques that deal with what what's going on in your body that that caused the cancer to be able to thrive. So now back to Germany. When I went to Germany, I, it was with that. I, I finally got around to to learning and thinking about that stuff about the time I left. And so it made more sense to me just from a logical standpoint. And therefore I was more into it and more receptive to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like I said, I just hated chemotherapy and how it made me feel the stuff they were doing in Germany was making me feel really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I went over there and I was still feeling some effects from the chemo. And when I came back uh, three weeks later, I was feeling much, much better. It's fascinating that you, you talk about like immunotherapy, if you think, and you know, the concept, you know, of immunotherapy has been around for some time. And I know, unfortunately, you know, in the pancreatic cancer space, at least here in the United States, it just has not happened, you know, and, and if you, to the greater success, right. You know, we've seen other cancers, you know, with immunotherapy have great response. And, you know, for those audience listening at home, you know, just like you said, Chris, you know, it's, your body's own ability to cure itself, right? Just like you get a common cold and, you know, your body fights it off and, you know, maybe you pop a Advil or Tylenol, but, you know, the body has an amazing ability to to cure itself. And when you think about cancer, like you said, you know, the, the options that are presented, chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation, you know, don't necessarily uh, sometimes, uh, you know, completely eliminate the cancer, right? And that's what the frustrating thing is, you know, like chemotherapy, you know, you look at pancreatic cancer and you had a, you know, a not very positive experience. And many people don't have positive experience with it because why? Because the chemotherapy becomes so toxic, right? And it has all these nasty side effects. And, you know, any medical oncologist would say, you know, that's designed because they, they hope that, you know, they kill the cancer as well as a lot of other things, right? And people have neuropathy and they have all these, you know, nausea, fatigue, you lose your hair, um, you know, facial hair and, and, you know, hair other parts of the body. And, you know, that's, that's what chemotherapy does. It kills everything in its path, right? As one doctor told me, it's not a smart bomb. No, no. It it, it kills everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's the frustrating thing with this disease. And, you know, from from not to get into an anatomy lesson, but, you know, think about, you know, there's certain cancers, you know, where they can inject the chemotherapy and, you know, they, they use agents to assist the chemotherapy to get right into that tumor or right into that organ where the cancer is present. And this is the frustrating thing with pancreatic cancer because it's so complex and where it sits from an anatomy standpoint, it really is difficult. We don't have a smart bomb for chemotherapy for pancreatic right. cancer. You know, and there have been some, you know, clinical trials where they've attempted to, you know, use like precision, 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 you know, uh, things that will, you know, deliver 
the right dosage of chemotherapy right to that pancreatic cancer tumor, but it just it just doesn't work right now. And then, you know, radiation, you know, they have made some strides in radiation where they're able to really pinpoint, you know, the radiation versus kind of like a shotgun, right? Where the radiation just goes directly into the body, but still that has a lot of side effects and, you know, isn't a hundred percent that, you know, other parts of the body there, they get that radiation treatment. So it's fascinating, you know, as you said, you know, like there's the three things that are designed, you know, don't eliminate the cancer potentially. And, you know, the, the thought of immunotherapy of, you know, I think you said like, why the cancer is present, you know, what are the reasons why that happened? And, you know, sometimes we, we don't think about those reasons. We just try to eliminate it, right? Like just get it out. But I think people often, you know, I, I don't know if it's shock and awe, but like, you know, whether it's lifestyle or traditional Western medicine, you know, maybe that we have, uh, you know, been ingrained in, and that's something that, you know, before we hit record, you and I were talking about, you know, this podcast is not about, you know, just sharing traditional medicine and Western medicine and what it's about. It's about sharing the success that people have had in this journey. And if that meant them going outside the box or outside the country and trying other things that have worked really well, then by all means, let's share it. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Um, but I, I also want to mention that um, going back to radiation and surgery, I, I was actually never a candidate for that. The location of my tumor is that it's wrapped around the tail of the pancreas. I mean, I, up until four and a half years ago, I didn't know the pancreas had a tail. Yeah. Um, but so, and it was near a vein. Um, and so doctors felt, no, can't do surgery, can't do radiation. They, they said that chemo was the only thing they could do. Um, I, I do think it's sad that uh, immunotherapy, Western medicine immunotherapy isn't used more for pancreatic cancer. I hope that changes, and it might. It might change. Um, but so far, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I, you know, it's frustrating because I think some people could really benefit from it. You know, and this is where, you know, we said this on the podcast before. In this journey, Chris, you became kind of your your own GP, right? You had to become your own advocate. Without question. I mean, I, you know, obviously I've had some help, whether it's girlfriend or my brother's friends. I mean, I have a community of people that have helped me tremendously. The bottom line, though, is you have to take charge. Um, Again, I didn't do that. I'm not lecturing here. I didn't do that at first. Um, but I've certainly learned that along the way. You have to take charge of your own health. You have to. Yeah, it's critical. It's critical. So fast forward to where we are today. You're bat you're finished the Ketruda or you're about to finish, you said. Um Yeah. Yeah. And so the latest or the the most recent scan shows tumor regression and you feel good? Yeah, I mean, I have to do another scan uh, to see if the growth, the slight, slight growth they detected a few months ago has regressed or not. I'll know that next month and uh, probably late February or so. Um, 
but I know I, I, I become a really good judge is how, you know, just listen to how my body feels mm-hmm. and I feel great. I mean, I'm working out literally at, uh, well, working out is too strong, but where I move my body two to three hours a day, whether it's walking or hiking or stationary bike or yoga or whatever. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working full time, parenting full time. Um, yeah. I'm, awesome. I'm doing really well. Yeah. So what do you do now? I'm going to note here that you didn't do prior to this diagnosis in terms of your lifestyle. You know, I've been practicing yoga for about 20 years. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, when I started, it was three days a week. I I'm doing it 20 or 30 minutes a day, every day now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm meditating. I, I haven't done it. I haven't meditated every day for the last, four and a half years, but I'm back into doing it now every day. Uh, meditation is 10 or 15 minutes. Um, I, it's what I said a few minutes ago. I, I'm making sure that I move my body at least two hours a day, um, especially during COVID when it's so easy to sit in front of a computer or a TV or whatever. Um, I'm more mindful of what I eat. I've never been a poor eater, but and I, I, I'm not dogmatic about it. And I certainly don't give recommendations to other people about, oh, you got to be a vegan or anything like that. I mean, I, I've started eating meat again a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. Um, I eat mostly vegetarian. I eat a lot of fish, though. Mm-hmm. Um, my girlfriend and I love oysters. So that's you know something we enjoy once or twice a month. Um, but I'm mindful of what I'm putting in my body and also how much of the food I'm putting in my body because we know, I mean, I'm, I'm in good shape. We know obesity is a, is a killer <laughs> or yeah. is a precursor for any number of diseases, including a risk for COVID. Um, so I've been, again, watching not only what I eat, but how much I eat. So prior to 16, did you have, would you eat a lot of meat, red meat? And you know, no, no, I've never, I've never been a big red meat eater, but it was, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I remember 10 years ago, I would drink Diet Coke. Mm-hmm. I will, you know, there's just no way I, I would do that now. <laughs> um, I have never been a smoker. Um, I rarely drink alcohol anyway. I mean, if I have a glass of wine once every three weeks or so, mm-hmm. if that. Um, so I didn't really have to make drastic changes that way. Um, I cut out, I, I, I've not been a coffee drinker, but I would drink green tea, but I even cut the caffeine out because, um, it just, I, I have one of those sensitive bodies that it keeps me up. If I drink green tea, it can keep me up at night. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just being mindful, I think more than anything. Um, one, one footnote to that is that when I got diagnosed and, I was, I started to ask or talk to a lot of nutritionists and I got such conflicting advice. Um, well, don't eat meat. Oh, it's okay to eat meat. Do keto. Don't do keto. (laughs) Um, and I realized it's what you said a few minutes ago. It's, there is no one size fits all. Even this is my opinion. Anyway, there's no one size fits all with regard to what we put in our body with one exception. And the exception that every nutritionist told me about, which I believe is, is be mindful of how much processed sugar you're putting in your body. So I've become much more mindful about that over the last few years. Yeah, that's important. I mean, I know people have talked a lot about diet. And so 
and I, I've mentioned this and, and reason why I asked that question, you know, in terms of what you do now, because there's, there's always, I always talk about this arch that people are on, you know, um, on this journey and, you know, whether it's diet, lifestyle, the things they did before and the things they do now, you know, after they've experienced something, you know, like pancreatic cancer, it's fascinating. But, you know, the one thing that, um, you know, it's kind of been the rule of thumb is like, you know, regardless of what you eat, you know, anything processed, you know, and, and you know, it's just not, no, no bueno, you know, it's just doesn't, doesn't, uh, you know, not good for the body, you know, and trying to, uh, and, you know, in a perfect world, yeah, could we all, you know, eat fresh foods and healthy foods? Yeah, that that's a, maybe a panacea you know, for us all because of lifestyle or just access to that sometimes. But the, the amount of processed food, heavily processed food, you know, sometimes can determine that quality of life for you. So it's, it's really critical, you know, and I mean, you know, you just said some, some really powerful things in terms of, and the one thing that really sticks out here, Chris, is just being mindful, you know, with the, and, you know, if I think about meditation, yoga, moving your body every day, and then what you're eating every day. You know, our bodies are an engine, right? And whatever you put into that engine, it spits out, right? Good, bad, and indifferent. But being mindful of that stuff is really critical. And especially, as you said, in COVID, I mean, we're, we're forced to be in our homes for a long periods of times to socially isolate you know, to not be out and about hanging out with friends and family at parties and stuff like that, or going out to dinner, you know, that mindfulness is, is really critical right now. And especially when it comes to, you know, your lifestyle of what you do and, and what you consume, it's, it's really critical. So I appreciate you bringing that up. It, it's helped me. I mean, and it, you know, I'm, I'm not, political in this way i mean I, I when i go outside i and i'm around people i wear a mask and i want to not only for myself but for others um yeah. I, I, but i'm also trying to take care of myself so i don't get covid yeah or or if i do get covid that i won't die from covid yeah um and i think i think you know that's sort of been lost in this country also i mean the this country is is not doing well just health wise. Even if we took COVID out of the equation, uh, because of what the American diet is, and lack of exercise, and all that. If anything, I hope, Chris, this is a wake up call for a lot of people. Um, you know, and I, I was not joking, but I said this to a colleague the other day. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me. The one thing we've heard, you know, is that with COVID, like comorbidities are a real issue. You know, and obesity, I think you mentioned, and, and, you know, diabetes is a real issue with people, you know, either having a, a positive experience, if there is one with COVID, or, you know, not having as negative of an experience, I should say. Nothing's positive about COVID, but, you know, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's just astonishing to me, you know, you turn on the TV and there's just not enough talk about, you know, doing the things to stay healthy, being mindful of what you eat what you do, meditation, yoga, exercise, just not the narrative right now in our country. And it's really, really sad, as you said. I, I wish there was more talk. I mean, even 
Dr. Fauci, who I respect, uh, there was one interview that he did with the actress Jennifer Garner for, I think she was doing a podcast. And he he talked about some of the preventive things that he's doing, some of the supplements he's taking and stuff. But he's never talked about it. He, he won't go on a news show and talk about that stuff. No. Yeah. It's, it's, it's scary. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, people have a, we all have choices, right? Like put down the ice cream, you know, put down the chips, uh, go out for a walk, you know, and, and eat healthy foods, man. And And that's one way that, you know, you can help yourself in the long run, not only for COVID, but for many, many diseases. Put down the pack of cigarettes if you're a smoker, right? Like, you know, it's astonishing. We've known for how many years now that smoking causes cancers. People still smoke, still sell cigarettes. You know, it's just it's just crazy. I, I will also tell you, I mean, last year in 2020, I took, during COVID, I took six trips. I was on planes I, and these were all fun trips. Yeah. Um, because I sort of felt like, okay, I want to live my life. I want to live my life, um, especially when you have when you have a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. You never really know. I mean, the truth is, none of us know. But um, and the other thing about COVID is that that I felt like, well, you know, when you get a diagnosis of a deadly cancer. The COVID thing, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm very mindful of it. I'm very careful, but it just never scared me nearly as much as, as the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. yeah. Powerful. I want to talk about your book because you wrote a book through this journey. And, and what was the inspiration for the book? Um, is it okay up front if I tell people how to get a copy? Absolutely. Uh, well, the, Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the quickest way is to email me. Um, and my email address is my name, Chris Joseph, C-H-R-I-S-J-O-S-E-P-H at Mac, like a computer, M-A-C.com. Um, so, and because I give the book away to, to cancer patients. Um, so what was, you asked me, what was the inspiration? Yeah. Why, why, um, what, what came up with a book? I mean, I know you were, you're, you know, you weren't an author beforehand. I was not an author. Um, <laughs> And I don't know if I'll write another book, to be honest with you. But I over the over, I mean, once I started doing better, which was summer of 2017, I started getting lots of emails and calls and texts from people, friends of friends, some from cancer patients themselves, some from relatives of cancer patients, and they wanted to know my story because surviving pancreatic cancer isn't common. Um, and doing well even is even less common. Um, and I was always, and still I'm always happy to talk to anyone. I, I would always tell people, look, I can't give advice. and I don't give advice, medical advice. I'll give advice about, well, you know, be your own advocate, talk to two doctors, three doctors, bring someone with you. I'll give that kind of advice. But, but I, I talked to so many people over the last few years and I realized well, this is a really good story. Um, and I had been blogging some early on, so I had some raw material to start with. I, I, it was a great way to remember exactly what I had gone through. But when COVID hit in March, um, I just made up my mind I was going to write a book. And I wrote the book in three three months, went through editing and all that. That took about another three months. And 
it came out in September of, of 2020. And um, it was a motivation to pay it forward. I, I had so many people that helped me that I just realized, okay, you know, this is a good story. Maybe it'll help other people. That's awesome. I want to talk about, and this is a great segue, you talk about so many people that helped you through this journey. And we always ask this question to survivors and fighters is, you know, those folks that have helped you in that journey, like what was that like? And and maybe for our audience listening at home, what's the best thing that either family or friends have done for you while you were fighting? Because a lot of times we get the question here, hey, my friend just got diagnosed. What should I do for him? Or people listening at home may have a best friend, a neighbor, a family member that's just gotten diagnosed. And I don't think people know what to do. I think that's all true. Yeah. I, I think um, sometimes I've not known what to say or do for other people. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think, well, I mean, this may not be directly answering your question, but let me start with this and then I'll try and directly answer your question. Um, I've learned so much about um, people who support other people with cancer. I mean, I was mm -hmm. the patient and, and still am in a way. Um, and I had, you know, whether it was my girlfriend or my kids or my friends or my brothers, um, I, I learned so much about how hard it is for them. I mean, I'm sure this was true for you when you were going through this with your father. It's hard taking care of cancer patients. It's really hard. And the, the, I don't know if there is, but there needs to be a support system just for people who are helping other people. Um, now I've talked so much, I forgot what your question was. I'm sorry. Well, no, you answered part of it, you know, so uh, two parts and it's a tough question. You know, what's the, what is the, the relationship of, you know, your friends and family that have helped you through this journey? That's one. And then the second one was maybe share an example of like something that those friends and family did for you during this journey that, you know, we could share with our audience for them to do for their, for their loved one or the person that's fighting. Uh, I can feel myself starting to choke up a little bit. So I, I'm sorry if that's I okay. start crying here, but um, when, there were so many examples, but the one that pops to mind is when I told the story a few minutes ago of, the day I quit chemotherapy and, and I told my girlfriend the next morning I was done and didn't want to go back. And, and I never did go back. Um, the most important thing that she did for me in that moment was hold my hand and support my decision to do that. She never said, "You, oh no, you have to go. You have to continue doing chemotherapy. She never said that. Maybe she thought it. I don't know. Mm. I, to this day, I don't think she thought it. But um, but but she was. That was that was true love and that was true support to just allow me to make the decision of what I wanted to do because I knew in my gut what I wanted to do. I didn't. Well, I didn't know what I, exactly what I wanted to do at that point, but I knew what I didn't want to do. Um, and it was it was a it was the pivotal point in my journey to be able to quit and have the love of someone to say, you know what, go for it, do what you think is right. And 
I think there's been times on my journey since then that she's disagreed with some of the things. I don't know if she agreed with me necessarily about going to Germany, but, but she supported it. And that, that, that to me is really, really critical to have a support system that is truly going to support you. It's powerful. Thanks for sharing that. It's really, really powerful to just think about for the audience listening at home. It doesn't have to be anything elaborate, but just to be there and be supportive of your loved one, which, you know, it doesn't cost you anything, maybe time, but that's time you can't, you know, it's, it's critical time. You can't get that back. It's critical time. I mean, I had people, there were some people early on in my journey when I wasn't doing well who wanted to know more about my journey and how I was going with chemotherapy. And, and one of my brothers was this way too. And he, you know, he, you know, they were all with good, great intentions. They wanted to know what was going on. And I, I was at that point, I was sick of talking about cancer. I was living with it. I didn't want to talk about it. And I finally got the courage to be able to tell the people who were asking me lots of questions look, let's talk about sports. Let's talk about politics. Let's talk about anything. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about, I don't want to talk about cancer anymore. And where I'm going with this is they got, they got it. They got it. Like, okay, we can, we can talk about regular stuff just like other people do. We don't have to talk about cancer. Um, so I, you know, every person needs their own things and doesn't need their own things. I don't, you know, I'm not suggesting don't talk to your friend or relative about cancer, but it's okay if you don't talk about cancer. It's okay if you try and laugh. It's okay to cry. It's okay to, it's okay to try and just live and be authentic. It's powerful. I got one more question for you, Chris. And then uh, most important thing we're going to share with our audience where they can connect with you. Um, and this is this is always a a question that we ask all our survivors, and I'm going to preface this by saying there's no right or wrong to this. This is your answer. It is a loaded question, so I'll preface it with that. And um, the question is, how do you define pancreatic cancer? Wow. Uh, how do I define pancreatic cancer? Um, <laughs> the one thing that just popped up is not an answer to your question, but I, but I mean, what came up in my head was I'm trying not to let it define me. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is though, there are, there are the 59 years before pancreatic cancer and there's the four and a half years since pancreatic cancer. And so in some sense it does define me now. Uh, not in a bad way, but it's just, it, it's a life-changing thing. Um, so ask me your question again. I want to see if I can come up with a better answer than that. How do you define pancreatic cancer? <sighs> well, I'm going to stick with the part, one of the, some of the words that I used earlier, it's definitely life-changing. Um, but I didn't know this at the start, but I know this now that there are ways to survive it and there are ways to not only survive, but to thrive and to live a great life. And 
you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to be around tomorrow or if I'm going to be around in 30 more years, but I'm determined to thrive for as long as I'm around. Powerful. Awesome. Last thing, Chris here, if someone heard something on this podcast, it could have been what we talked about uh, in Germany, something along your journey that we've shared today, and they would love to connect and learn more from you. What's the best place for someone to do that? Um, so two ways. And again, I want to reiterate, I'm happy to communicate with anyone. I really am. Um, so please reach out. Um, my email address, as I mentioned earlier, is chrisjoseph at mac.com. There's a website for the book. And I hope I remember the name of the, or the, the website. I think it's uh, lifeisaridebook.com. Lifeisaridebook.com. Um, so either of those two ways is great. And those listening at home can also purchase it on Amazon. You smile, select project purple, uh, but it's life is a ride. Chris, thank you for being a guest on the project purple podcast, for sharing your story, your journey. And, you know, I've been taking notes here, as I said, in the, in the very beginning, and um, I've got a couple things here that I'm just going to repeat here. And I just wrote, uh, you know, this is an amazing example for so many people on how you've lived your life since you've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And something that you said a couple times here is just thriving versus surviving. And what an example for the community to have that mindset. So from all of us here at Project Purple, thank you for coming on and being our guest and sharing your story. And we hope that you continue to thrive through life for a long, long time. Thank you so much for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you heard today, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share this podcast as well. Until next time, please be safe and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.